0: Just after 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and that must mean it's time again for Money Management with Opus 111 Group's Mike Mayle. Here's Mike. Good morning. Welcome to Money Management. I'm Mike Mayle with the Opus 111 Group, and we're here as we are every Saturday at 9 Pacific to talk with you about the markets and the economy and to give you some insights into what's been going on. and. This past week, I think we need a lot of insights. <laughs> it's been a little confusing. Now, before I go too further along, a couple of admin issues. First of all, thank you very much to Mr. James Harvey for having sat in for me last Saturday. I know he has cogent comments for everybody. And then this uh, Monday, will be closed for a uh, three-day holiday, so markets will not be opened. What I want to do with this particular episode or episodes is try and give you some perspective above and beyond what you see from the news every day. Um, it's I'm trying. I want to you know, like I like to say, uh, using John Candy's line, uh, "Just the facts, Jack." That's what we're focusing on here. Not a lot of hyperbole, but something you can use to actually make informed decisions, as opposed to relying totally on your emotional responses to the headlines. In that regard, let's see what we did. Uh, This week, uh, they called it the worst week since 2020. What does that mean? Nothing. It's just one of those, uh, you know, kind of things to get your attention and perhaps make you feel more suicidal or some such. I don't know. But in any regard, uh, the Dow closed uh, yesterday at 29,888. That was down just 38 points when it all settled out. S&P lower by uh 2 well excuse me not on yesterday It closed up actually a fraction at 3674 the Nasdaq was up 1.4% it was at 10798 Russell 2000 closed the week at 1665 gold settled at 1836 an ounce silver was at 2160 crude dropped a bunch uh, on concerns that the higher interest rate would cut off supply Uh, excuse me, demand going forward. It's down at 107.98 a barrel. Ten-year treasury uh, had been up to 3.48% intra week, closed the week at 3.23, and soft white wheat was last quoted at 11.36 a bushel. So last Monday, uh, our market quote-unquote, officially entered a bear market because the S&P closed uh, down 21% below its all-time record, uh, which had been set in January, last January. So investors, uh, and again, no surprise here, dumping growth stocks among amid uh, fears of an economic recession. Uh, we'll be talking about that recession. We'll be talking about the Fed, oil prices, inflation, and those kinds of things uh, in today's broadcast. You know, and even if the bear market didn't uh, become official until just now, in actuality, as I think most people are aware, a majority of stocks, wherever they live in terms of index, uh, have been in a bear market of their own for a bunch of months. The Nasdaq's been in a bear market since last winter, and (laughs) let's just say it hasn't recovered just yet. Now, Thursday, the index uh, reached its lowest close since December of 2020. That means nothing. It's just a reference. And why they keep throwing in these dates, I don't know. But anyhow, to give you some more perspective, the S&P is now 23.5% below its all-time closing high. Now, that was larger than what we had in 1987, but let me add that the 1987 drop happened in one day. One day. And uh, this one, it's been stretched out over half a year, so more like water torture you know, inflation, I think it's fair to say, has spooked our friends on Wall Street. And the traders now believe that the Fed needs to keep raising the interest rates. A week ago, Friday, the yield on the two-year Treasury uh, bill jumped t- from 2.83 to 3.45 percent. That doesn't sound like a lot, but that's a 21 percent increase. And see, the two-year is often seen as kind of a, a what they call a proxy for the market's opinion of where interest rates should be. Now, what we're seeing, and again, no headline here, is the risky stocks have been getting slammed while the more conservative ones are down, but not nearly as much. Many of these stocks are giving back gains that some feel perhaps they shouldn't have it in the first place. For example, Moderna uh, trading down uh, at one quarter of their value since August, Zoom down 80% from their high. Netflix off 70% just this year. And Peloton, the arch, <laughs> the poster guy for bad stock performance, I guess. In just one year's time, the stock had been at one twenty-nine seventy. It closed yesterday at nine dollars seventy four cents. This, in a kind of a left-handed way, it makes I think a strong case for asset allocation and diversification. If you're playing uh, sector bets on you know certain parts of the economy or certain kinds of stocks. Uh, what the market does means nothing because it's only going to affect what your particular sector or series of stocks are going to do. Asset allocation, diversification, great ways to help protect yourself. Now, as I mentioned, the NASDAQ's off about 33% from its high. So that means for every $3 invested in a NASDAQ index in November, there's Two dollars today. So you need to know that the index will have to gain more than 50% from here just to break even. And as long as interest rates are rising, well, that puts pressure on stock valuations. Even companies that don't pay dividends are getting squeezed by higher rates. And as long as there's pressure on valuations, that falls harder on those high-risk stocks. And right now, we're probably closer, my perception, uh, to the market's bottom than we are to the top. And uh, the market's going to turn at some point. They always do. And it's usually at the point when folks are ready to say, I'm done. So key here, focus on strong companies with solid balance sheets. And you also want to own companies that can pass along price increases. You know, kind of the leaders in their perspective field. Now, I get asked a lot about oil prices. So I'm going to start with that particular segment. Now, last Friday... Some guy, I don't know who he is, said Exxon is making more money than God this year. Obviously not an analyst. But I don't know what the Lord's hourly rate is, but I do know that Exxon is far from the most profitable com- company in this country. You know, they're going to generate it, they presume, about $41 billion in net income this year. That's up from $23 billion last year. Not exactly uh, starving to death. It also paid 2.8 billion in taxes in just the first quarter and about 12 billion total for uh, the entire year. But their profits are going to be well behind Apple, Microsoft, Google, JP. Morgan. Apple is by far the champ when it comes to profits. They're going to earn about 100 billion this fiscal year, and Alphabet will come in at about 73 billion, Microsoft at 70, and JP. Morgan Chase at 60 billion. Interesting to me how few seem to mind the enormous profits generated by Apple and these other companies. And Friday, yesterday, the oil prices dropped about 6%. They came in at a four-week low because they're saying interest rates, hikes by the major central banks around the world could slow the global economy and cut demand for energy. Those are those kinds of trader leaps of conclusion, that leaps to conclusion. And while energy stocks have definitely crushed it over the past two years, they got crushed from 2014 to 2020. Energy was the worst performing sector in six out of seven years. For those of you who owned it, you know that to be true. And in that seven-year period, energy stocks were down 44%, S&P was up 130% in total, the tech sector up more than 300%. Now, during the pandemic, Exxon had, uh, how would I say, unconscionable losses. They ate $22 billion in losses just in 2020. And for some reason, I don't recall too many proposals from the politicians to make those shareholders whole for their excessively, uh, shall we say, generous losses. And for the record, the Federal Trade Commission has investigated whether U.S. companies set the price of oil about 2.8 quintillion times. Oil companies don't do it because they make up a relatively small share of the global oil industry. Exxon is huge, but it's only 3% of global oil production. It could go non-profit tomorrow, and global commodity profits would—excuse markets would steal what they're going to do. But still no sign from our current federal government lending a hand on the energy front. The current administration recently blamed high prices on gouging rather than offering regulatory relief or even new leases to help spur additional production. And the good news is that capacity still come, is coming back on despite this lack of action. You know, it's no secret that pretty much every recession over the last 50 years, with the exception of the little bit of business we had last year, was triggered by the Fed tightening monetary policy in order to bring inflation down. Tightening monetary policy in English means raising interest rates. So that explains why the stock market is kind of all over the place. The market apparently believes that our unexpectedly relatively high inflation will provoke a serious Fed tightening, which would then pose a serious threat to the economy. Well, I, I would call that conclusion jumping. Uh, now, the fact is that Wednesday, the Fed did raise uh, their benchmark interest rate by three-quarters of a percent. And Mr. Powell said in his press conference that on Wednesday that either a 50 basis point or 75 basis point increase seems most likely at our next meeting, which, by the way, would be in July. Now, the Fed officials cut their outlook for the economic growth uh, for this year. They're anticipating just a 1.7% gain in GDP. And they also said that strongly committed as opposed to expect to... uh, help get prices back down to the 2% target for inflation. And uh, quoting from their uh, announcement, overall economic activity appears to have picked up after edging down in the first quarter. Job gains have been robust in recent months, and the unemployment rate has remained low. Inflation remains elevated, reflecting supply and demand imbalances related to the pandemic, higher energy prices, and broader price pressures, unquote. Now Wednesday, when he ma- when they made the announcement, the market jumped up. The Dow was up three hundred three points. Uh, the S and P was up, Nasdaq up two and a half percent. And then on Thursday, only in the way that traders think, if that's what they do, they and based on the exact same news, nothing changed. No newer reports. Nothing. Market sentiment turned, uh, shall we say, upside down, uh, as uh, uh, apparently the other. Central banks around the world are moving toward more aggressive monetary policy stances, again, code for raising interest rates. And so investors, which is uh, what the news guys use as code for traders, questioned whether the Fed could pull off a soft landing. As a result, whoops, the Dow was up 303 on Wednesday, down 741 on Tuesday. Uh, The S&P lost 3.2%, the Nasdaq off 4%. And again, nothing changed. The important thing to understand is that bear markets happen. They just do. It's part of investing. It's the normal course of events. It's part of free markets. You know, a bear market, on average, comes along every four years, sometimes more, sometimes less, but they do. Now, I have before me a chart, and if you look closely, you can see it. Well, maybe not that good. But anyway, it goes back to 1937, and it plots uh, the uh, S&P over that entire period of time and says, well, how'd it do? And from, in every 10-year period, well, let me let me qualify this. From 1929 to 1939, which would be the Depression, the, that's a 10-year period, it was down 5% overall. Uh, in, uh, sixty from 64 to 74, it was down a half a percent. Okay, those were two big, uh, recessionary drops but every other 10 year period bet- since then between then was up and the average well the average annual return for the S&P from 1937 to 2021 end of is okay anybody want to guess 10.5% Those World War II Korea Vietnam Iraq World Trade Center, Y2K, all that stuff. It all happened, and the average annual return is 10.57%. Only if you stayed in the market. See, because the other part, markets rebound. They just do. It takes time. And and as I just said, over 10-year periods, going back, we go back to 1926, the stock market has lost money just 6% of the time. Over 20-year periods, the market as a whole has never lost money. Sounds good for retired folks, I would say, but times on the side of the investor who does not panic, and that's what we're all about around here. <laughs> I always say that the three words we use at tops and bottoms of markets: don't do that. You know, don't jump in at the to- high, don't get out at the low. And uh, you know, the bear doesn't bite everybody the same way. It's been high on the uh, excuse me hard on the high risk stocks that did so well in the good times as we alluded to earlier and now it's the revenge of the boring stocks there's really not much mystery here the uh, kids on wall street are terrified of inflation anyone who wasn't an invest who was excuse me an investor in the 70s would surely remember though i can categorically say since i was there for the movie this current environment is nowhere even close to what happened then it is nowhere near as negative, bad in any way, shape, or form. A lot of this has been, well, self-induced as opposed to induced by the overall economy itself. And the higher interest rate, well, basically scares stock. See, because if a stock has a dividend of, say, 3%, when the, when the Fed was holding interest rates at nothing, stocks are a no-brainer. But what if the Fed moves interest rates up to 3 or 5% or even higher than that? Well, stocks have to react to the competition, and the way that happens is as you lower the price of the instrument, meaning a stock, to increase the yield, and that's what's happening. You know, I think uh, it's probably a relatively safe assumption the Fed's going to increase interest rates another couple percent by the end of the year, and uh, likely the uh, three-quarters of a percent at its next meeting. So stay tuned. But they're at least making an effort to get things back under control, which I think is to our mutual benefit. Now, inflation, it's the hidden tax. You know, it's uh, an eight, currently an 8.6% tax on each one of us that you don't see. Uh, you know, prices are up at restaurants and grocery stores, uh, you know, and they're going to have to, and the food suppliers and restaurants say they're going to have to continue to raise prices as they face these higher costs. Now, sooner or later, we're going to get something that's called demand destruction. In in other words, prices get to a point where people don't buy anymore, okay, and and the demand drops. So the biggest question now is how quickly will inflation change folks' spending, and how quickly will that in turn cool off inflation? See, here's another thing that's kind of a challenge. The 10-year Treasury bond is on pace for its worst year in history with a loss so far 12.8%, Twelve point eight percent. So, and that's in principle. Yeah, entering the year, the eleven point one percent decline in '09 was the largest ever. And the ten-year Treasury rate affects mortgage rates, car credit loan rates, and lots of other things. So, it has a big ripple effect. And and taking it even further, the average savings account now in the U.S. rate zero point zero seven percent. Old buddy. And the current inflation rate, as I mentioned, is 8.6%. So every year, your money is sitting in the quote-unquote safe bank. You're getting a negative 8.53% on your money. See, investing your money isn't a choice. You have to do it. Now, where you put it, fine. But you got to do something to factor in taxes and inflation, or you're going to be in uh, deep kimchi come down the road here. Um. You know, ongoing issues with the supply chain, labor shortages, it definitely slowing a, a bigger rise in activity. At job openings in the manufacturing sector are currently at record highs and more than double the pre-pandemic levels. The mismatch below, excuse me, between supply and demand is one reason why inflation remains so high. And, you know, as interest rates have climbed, the so-called real yield Uh, which is what you get after taxes, after inflation, on long-term treasury-protected securities, known as TIPS, rose to 1% uh, earlier this year. Now, that measure tracks what these securities pay investors in excess of expected inflation. It began this year at minus 0.43%. It's now at 0.66%. So put it another way, a million-dollar investment in TIPS will give you 6600 in annual income after inflation, essentially risk-free. And as recently as April, that million dollars would have given you no inflation-adjusted income at all. We were talking about TIPS, and again, that means Treasury Inflation Protected Securities, T-I-P-S. And uh, the, the principle of, t- of a TIPS, if you will, Increases with inflation, decreases with deflation. That's why the yields were non-existent earlier. And that's as measured by the CPI. So when a tip comes due, you are paid the adjusted principal or original principal, whichever is greater. Now, these things do pay interest twice a year at a fixed rate. And the rates applied to the adjusted principal. So, like the principal, interest payments rise with inflation, fall with deflation. Now, you can get these things from Treasury Direct, so it doesn't cost you anything, and there's no no limit on how many you can invest in that I'm aware of. Now, the other one that's a a good situation when it comes to bonds, as opposed to most others, are those I-bonds. Now, there's some Mm -hmm. (laughs) catches to this. The biggest one is you can only put $10,000 per person into these things, and they adjust interest every six months. Currently... If you put money in, and again, I think I said you can do these through Treasury Direct as well. You can um, get 9.62% through October of this year. Come the 1st of November, they'll adjust it up or down, depending upon what inflation is doing at that point. So a couple good ways to help uh, give you some cash flow that will be protected to some extent from inflation. You know, uh, um, Mr. Powell also added that core inflation, which is what they look at, that does not include food and energy. And the reason it doesn't is because those numbers are all over the place every month. And so uh, the the feds, it's something that they think about because it's a better predictor of future inflation. However, those of us out here in the cheap seats are saying that headline inflation is what we experience. So it's kind of a hard thing to do to walk the Walk down the middle of that. We've got a strong dollar. Inflation expectations are subdued, and excess M2 is declining. Now, what's M2? That includes basically all the money in the U.S. Currency, coins, check deposits, traveler's checks, savings deposits, money markets, uh, deposits under $100,000, and money markets. I'd say that pretty much covers the waterfront. So, all of this reinforces the idea that there is light at the end of this inflation tunnel. The situation is far from being out of control. Don't let anybody tell you that. That's baloney sausage. Annual inflation expectations are up, but they're not out of control. It's currently expectations around 3.2%. Nevertheless, you should probably expect to see relatively high inflation. I say relatively compared to what we've seen over the last 10 years. For another year or so. We've got a huge increase in housing prices that really hasn't even been factored into the CPI yet. It's going to take another year or so for it to work its way in there. And as well as uh, time for all the excess M2 to be unwound. And meanwhile, supply chains are still in disarray. Political tensions are working to boost energy and raw materials prices. We can't control that. I mean, individually. But the Fed deficits have collapsed because spending is down and revenues, tax revenues, have surged. And M2 growth has also collapsed. In fact, M2 grew at only 1.3% in the most recent three-month period, and it actually declined from March. So this effectively takes a big source of future inflation potential out of the game going forward, which helps the Fed's fighting inflation. Now, I have to throw in one comment about my favorite yellow rock, gold. Gold's reputation as a quote-unquote good hedge against inflation, I think, is a case of the precious metal still resting on its laurels from the 1970s. As its price action has shown recently, gold has definitely not been an effective hedge against inflation. The high inflation we had in the 70s, including costs rising at times over 10% in a year. For the record, gold did, in fact, beat inflation from 73 to 79. But, oops, from 79 not on, not so good. If you look at how gold performed during the two inflationary periods that followed the 70s, you'll see that gold actually underperformed by the rate of inflation by a bunch. Now, The shares of leading companies in the U.S. and the rest of the world have much stronger records at beating inflation in the short term than do gold and several other asset classes. The U.S. has returned an average of 14.3%. The uh, uh, major uh, big tech, excuse me, big cap stocks of the rest of the world are 15.4%. And even when they've underperformed, it's been by a slimmer margin than gold. So if you like gold, You can buy it and then use it to help keep your doors open when the wind starts blowing. Okay? Recession talk. Holy cow moly. Boy, I get... (laughs) I read this week of a survey in which 59% of the folks who responded said the economy is currently in a recession. Um, To quote a World War II general, that's nuts. This is... Well... This is an unusual moment for the economy because the real part of the economy, that's where people are actually working and making things, doing very well. A week ago yesterday, we learned that the economy added 390,000 net new jobs last month. That's not bad. You know, the unemployment rate is very low. National unemployment rate is very low at 3.6%. Now, understand this. Here's perspective. The jobless rate is now lower than it was at any time during every single month of the 70s, 80s, 90s, 00s, and 10s up until September 2019. That's kind of a long time. Industrial activity uh, just came out, uh, continued its V-shaped recovery in May, up for the fifth month in a row. It's the financial part of the economy that's freaking out. My buddies in New York and their pundits and analysts and all those cats, I don't don't get it. But, you know, uh, the thing is, though, that while they're quite different, they do tend to link up eventually. And again, the economy is not currently in a recession. See, a recession has a specific meaning. You can come up with a bunch of definitions. But basically, it's a period where the economy is experiencing temporary decline. That's not happening yet. While it's true that the first quarter GDP was slightly negative, that was more of a technical issue. Consumers are still doing, still doing pretty well. Economic growth for the quarter, this quarter, which ends in a couple of weeks, will likely be better. Now, the official, quote-unquote, National Bureau of Economic something, NBER, states, and again i quoting, a recession involves a significant decline in economic activity that is spread across the economy and lasts more than a few months none of which is present today so given our economic data it's very confusing to me to hear so many people say we're in a recession right now our very low employment unemployment excuse me continued job growth and other signs of economic health make that irrelevant Second, because economies are cyclical, which means they go up and go down, there's always going to be a recession someday. That's why they call them business cycles. You know, if you you were to take a, a watch, a real watch, not an electronic watch, and take off the back, and you saw the little wheels spinning around, you'll see that those gears all move at different speeds. So, too, do stocks within the economy. So, too, do sectors within the economy. Not everybody's up at the same time. Not everybody's down at the same time. So... The key issue to me then is timing. So the better question may be: Is a recession close? Well, I don't think so. Not in this quarter, third quarter. I doubt even the fourth quarter. But it's always possible. Leading economic indi- excuse me, leading indicators of economic contractions are not present. Inflation sure remains a concern. The biggest warning sign being the stock market, with the uh, S and P off twenty three percent. But that defines nothing. They're just data points. If you go do a compare and contrast with this year with each of the six prior recessions going back to 1979, none of the early signs of contractions exist in any of the 50 states. Now, we do have three major economic events taking place this year. Feds raising rates, we know that. The checks from the government are finally over. And services are reopening. So, while goods spending is slowing down, the biggest part of the economy is opening up, though more slowly, due to the inflation drag. You know, one of the things I think is key is don't cling to the past. Do not invest using a rearview mirror. The the economy is always changing. It's always evolving. If you're broadly diversified, you're automatically going to be invested in both the best and worst performers But the best performers more than make up for the worst performers over the long run. In in terms of statistics, the stock market, the U.S. stock market, was up 72% over the prior three years. Yet another reason why people are all freaky about what's going on now because, well, the market only goes up, doesn't it? Right. But over longer periods, 55% of market days are higher. So it's basically a coin toss. Now, in terms of months, 65% of all market months are higher. Here's the best part. 75% of all market years are higher, and the market has always gone up more than it went down. So, boom. You just got to look beyond the cliff, okay? It's okay to feel bearish and still stick with the portfolio you've built. You know, if you have to take some risk off in order to better sleep at night, well, do what you have to. But don't dump everything because you'll never get back in. Remember, don't do that. Because if you do get back in, it'll likely be at higher prices. Now, some folks say, well, markets like this, i got to quit putting money into my retirement plan. Nay, nay. Because what happens, I have a, another graph uh, that runs from uh, January of 2012 to year-end last year. And it says, well, if you had invested $1,000 the first part of that period and just held it, uh, you would have had thirty seven hundred ninety dollars. if you missed just ten days, and this is nine years we're talking about ten market days you' you dropped forty four percent in value to twenty one hundred eight dollars. If you missed twenty market days, you dropped fifty eight percent to fifteen hundred seventy five dollars. If you missed the thirty best days, again over nine years. Sixty-seven percent in the in the whole, at twelve forty-three, and if you missed forty best days, which basically two months of nine years, a thousand five, like five dollars is all you got after all that time. So you got to be in the game, folks, and stay investing in your retirement plans because you buy more when the stocks are down. You know the stock market's the only place I've ever heard of where people complain because prices are lower and makes things more cheap whatever anyway you know buy low sell high that's how you do it now things are rough right now i get it but if you can make it through to the other side the uh, person you see on the other side your future self is going to say oh thank you very much but if you're going to be a seller now here's what i think you got you have to th- you have to believe three things that the S&P is going to drop another 25 to 30% from here. And that's down on top of the already down 23%. You also believe your capital gains taxes will be less than the rest of the drop. And you, (laughs) this is the funny part, you will be able to get back in at or near the lows. Well, I doubt that most investors have uh, really done any work on any of these and could even pull them off uh, if they did. Right now, A majority of investment fund managers uh, say they expect sluggish growth and soaring inflation as the most likely outcome. This according to Bank of America. And they call that stagflation, which I think is also another misapplied term. See, stagflation is a combination of economic stagnation and high inflation. And that's that's characterized, you have high consumer prices as well as high unemployment. Well, we do have the high consumer prices, we do not have high unemployment. And we had this problem in the 70s and early 80s. We had high oil prices, rising unemployment, and we had the CPI, the Consumer Price Index, at 14.8% in 1980. Interest rates were up at 20%. Don't be saying, "Gee, I wish I had some of that," because the uh, tax rate, uh, top tax rate, was seventy percent individual at the time. So nobody was making money. I assure you. Michael Hartnett of Bank America wrote, "Wall Street sentiment is dire." He says inflation will remain high relative to history. So by far and away, the most popular description of what the economic backdrop will be in twelve months is stagflation. And I humbly disagree, sir. I uh, but. We don't have time to go into that too much right now. Now, as we've said many times, the s and is down about 23% so far this year. Seven of the S&P's sectors were re- off recently less than 20% from their highs, so they're not in a bear market, are they? You know, but one of the 11, however, were down so far this year with energy up about 50%. That was the exception. Now, financials, industrials, healthcare, these are sectors in the S&P 500 financials industrials healthcare materials consumer staples utilities all in the red since their highs in january but were in bear market territory utilities and consumer staples were both down less than 10% worst performing sector consumer discretionary that includes companies selling non-essential goods and services down about 35% communication services infotech and real estate all down more than 20% now, our proprietary models here at Opus 111, for example, react to current market conditions by determining how much or how little exposure we have in the models to the stock market based on how the stock market itself is acting. Our models use price itself for the inputs, not economics, not commentary, not us putting our little tiny heads together, not earnings reports, not global macro thought leadership. It's asks a simple question, is the market going up or down? It answers a question, adopts a structure, and that's that. No opinions, biases, emotions can affect the structure. It's math. It's rules. If you're interested in hearing more about it, please uh, drop me a note or give me a call. Uh, You know, sentiment gauges. That's another thing. You know, consumer confidence, those kinds of things. Moods don't foretell economic activity, and it's often wiser to look at them as kind of what markets have already priced into what, well, have already priced in the markets, as opposed to what's uh, on the coming attractions. Now, today times are very difficult for many households and businesses. That I'm not making light of that in any way, shape, or form. The latest sentiment surveys provide a snapshot of real-life hardship. Uh, the University of Michigan's gauge will show you mostly what folks are experiencing, fearing, and therefore pricing into stocks already. And these challenges, are, well, they could persist for a while, which is highly frustrating, but sentiment measures can also provide a sense of where expectations are relative to reality. Today, the surveys paint a similar picture. Few expect much in terms of growth, with forecasts of troubles or recession are increasingly common. Now, we don't dismiss them many fears that taking turns, but given how widespread all this discussion is, efficient markets have likely pre-priced a lot of those issues already, which reduces the surprise power. And low expectations can set the stage for upside surprises. You know, the S&P is off about 23%, so that's not bad, unless you're investing only in index funds. But is it going to fall 30 or 40? Could it get cut in half? Well, sure, we've seen it happen, but What's the if the worst doesn't come to pass? Aha, let's take the other side of that bet. What if inflation actually does begin to moderate? What if the economy bends but doesn't break? Then how much of that risk has already been priced into the market? And I think it's quite a bit. Remind yourself that nobody knows how low the market's going to get, how bad it's going to get, or how long the tough times are going to last. Unfortunately, i got to be in that line too. Same thing with people who are telling you the bottom's in. Yeah, nobody knows. But it, just one thing in closing. Uh, you know, uh, A Goldman Sachs analyst uh, led by David Costin suggested dividend stocks may present a value going forward. They are particularly attractive, they say, in our view. They typically outperform in environments of elevated inflation. In addition, dividends currently benefit from st- strong corporate balance sheets. So, Those are the comments for this week. I hope you found them helpful. I could have talked for another three hours, I'm sure, but we do have time constraints. But before I go, I want to say uh, Happy Father's Day to everyone who qualifies for that title and even folks who may not be a father but perhaps have or had one at one time. I'm a broad brush kind of guy. So have a great week. Hope it's profitable and productive. We'll be back next Saturday at 9 Pacific with Money Management. My name is Mike Mayo. I'm with the Opus 111 Group. Join us again next Saturday morning at this same time for the financial insight, opinion, and perspective of Money Management with Mike Mayo. Have a question or comment? You can reach Mike at our website, opus111group.com.